0: Hi, I'm Dave Merlino. I'm Dustin Sweet, and this is the Know Their Story Podcast. We talk to veterans about their time in service, returning home from war, and transitioning out of the military. Hopefully, along the way, we'll inspire you to do the same with a veteran in your life.
1: Because sometimes all it takes to make the world a better place is sitting down with a friend to know their story. All right, we're back. Episode six of the podcast, Dustin. I'm gonna say what I say. Have six episodes of this. Well, by the time Uh, we're done, we have six episodes. (laughs) Ed could like just at any moment say, "What did I get myself into?" And and click out of here. I keep I keep waiting for him to bow out, but uh,
0: the American legend stays with us. Yeah, sitting down.
1: I'll just, when you start doing that, I was like, I'll just move my computer screen like now the camera's on me. That doesn't
0: that doesn't work like that right now. <laughs>
1: yeah, but sitting down for not his first, not his second, but his third time talking to us, which you, you've got a very high pain tolerance at. Yeah. <laughs> um, we have a veteran of uh, Vietnam War, served two tours of duty, uh, 67 to 68, as a scout dog handler, Uh, which saw him, um, you've read about these things in history books, depending on your age, Uh, younger viewers, maybe not. But in your history books, you've read about the Tet Offensive, you've read about Quezon, you've read about Dacto. Uh, Our guest today did not have to read about them because he was there. Um, Came home 68, uh, ended up going back for a second tour, 69 to 70 where he uh, originally started with the Lerp Rangers uh, and then transitioned over to Apache Troop um, and uh, was a point man for the Blues. Uh, please welcome Mr. Uh, not Mister Sergeant Ed Beal. Thanks for joining us, Ed.
2: Hey! Hey! <laughs> How are you guys doing? Pretty good. Hi. How are you doing, Ed? It's nice to I'm see doing. you. Doing fine. Good to see you all.
1: Sounds like uh, you've
2: got our weather of the rain there and it's sunny and 70 here in Seattle. Yeah, really. In the last week we have nothing but rain. Wow! I
1: look forward to the humidity then
2: when we visit you. Yeah, no kidding.
1: Yes, really. (laughs) So, um, but again, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, Very much looking forward to the discussion, just like every time we sit down with you. Um, I once again, turn it over to my uh, partner in crime, co-conspirator, Mr. Senior Dustin Sweet.
0: Thank you, Dave. I appreciate the nod. And <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you and I have talked a bunch the last couple years. I'd go so far as to call you one of my friends. Uh, I um, I guess I'll ask one more time. How did you end up in Vietnam?
2: Well, first off, I want to say this, Dustin. You're one of my best, you and Dave are one of my best friends. Oh, man. And I appreciate the, I, I appreciate it very much. I, and always, I,
1: I always feel honored that I was your very
2: first Facebook friend. <laughs> there you go. Okay, Dustin, you asked me how I got to Vietnam. Yes, sir. First, the first time.
1: The first time, yeah. Okay. As I like to say, did you volunteer or were you volunteers?
2: Uh, Well, actually, when I got out of high school, I was a point in my life I was trying to find out exactly who I was. Mm -hmm. So growing up, I always wanted to be a Marine. So in September 1966, I went to Marine Recruiter in Greensboro, North Carolina and went to him and volunteered for duty. And he said, yes, we'll take you, but it'd be a couple of days to get a load to go to Paris Island. So I didn't really want to wait a couple of days. I went next door to the Army recruiter and I was down Fort Bragg at Eden. That's how fast <laughs> that was.
1: When you know, you know. Like, don't get to, to to back out of this, Marines.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: Well, that's,
0: that's fun. How long, so how long were you, you were in basic for a couple weeks and then, then they sent you down to, um, down to Louisiana or what, how'd you end up? Well,
2: actually, after I joined and went through basic training at Fort Bragg for eight weeks, then I went to Fort Gordon, Georgia and took an infantry AIT. And while I was there, they was asking for volunteers to work with the scout dog units. And so... Loving animals like I do, I volunteer for it. And so that was another three-month program right there at Fort Denny, teaching you how to handle dogs and what they, you needed to do. And uh, once that training was over with, I went to Vietnam in June 1967 with the 25th IPSD attached to the first cab division. We were stationed at I.K. That was really the main base base camp there and
0: uh and so then would did that put you in that put you in northern vietnam operating say again so so what parts of vietnam did you operate in with the dog
2: okay and how uh, many how many
0: dogs did you end up with
2: just one just one and his name was duke and he was a beautiful black and white german shepherd he had a little silver to him and we just got along real good and I worked with him the whole two hours there. But the first six months I was there, we worked around the Central Highlands and Bin Bin province. Okay. Then I think it was in uh, November sixty seven, the first cab moved north. They mm-hmm. left uh three core and they moved to I Corps. And we was, went up under the Operation Pegasus. Yep. And our main objective was to go up to help relieve the Marines at Quezon. And uh, it is a different kind of war up there and I-Cord it was down there and the, around the rice paddies and villages and stuff. And uh, totally different kind. A lot of mountains.
0: Yeah, it's a totally different landscape, right?
2: Yes
1: so you were sent to help relieve the marines at caisson at and you said right. you were pretty much one of the first people to walk in there then i uh,
2: was the se- i was the second american army soldier to walk into caisson when they helped break that siege the company commander of the infantry unit i was with he was going to be the first one so i was behind him.
1: well rank has its privileges
2: But I would like to say one thing about the dog I had in Vietnam. Uh, Say as much
0: as you like. I want to hear every Duke story you have.
2: Well, uh, like I said, I kept Duke the whole year, and he he probably saved our butts several times while I was out on patrol. But once I left country my first tour, I was stationed in Germany, Mm -hmm. and I got a letter from my platoon sergeant and he told me at that time that Duke and the handler was killed by a booby trap about two months after I left country. Evidently, it must have been an old booby trap and he just didn't pick up on it or detect it in any way and it got both of
1: them. Oh, shucks. No scent left on it. Well, and that's why I've never agreed with the classification that the army has of military working dogs being property uh and not soldiers in themselves. Uh, yeah, really. It's it's a, at this point very well proven that um the military working dogs can suffer PTS just as much as their human uh partners. Yeah. And I would like I would like to see a lot more recognition for working dogs. Uh, yeah. so, yes. Yes. I mean, as a dog lover, also as um, when I first applied to customs, I actually applied on um, a special uh, announcement to be a canine handler on the southern border. Um, so of course, they sent me to Seattle with no dog. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that should have been my sense. first clue. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> no. Um, but you, after you. After your first tour, you went back to Germany. Um, how long were you in Germany and, and what got you back to Vietnam?
2: Well, when I was in Germany, uh, just to be very honest we uh, it was kind of rough over in Germany because of the racial problem at that time in 1968. It probably spilled over from the United States to Germany and just It just got to the point where I didn't, couldn't handle it. So I I actually 1049 to go back to Vietnam. A few months later, I was back in country again. I just didn't, just couldn't handle the racial disparity in Germany at that time. uh,
1: Well, I talked to Craig about that the other day. He said, when you're in country, you know, you're your teammates, you're your brothers, like everyone's there to survive. But once you start getting farther and farther away from the front at that time,
2: it, there was no definitely... You know, I, had, I probably had a lot to do with it too, you know. I just felt out of place and I had to correct it just as fast mm-hmm. and you know, as I could, so.
1: Well, and was it also hard for you as someone who's seen, you know, not just combat, but some of the most well-known combat of the war, to then be back in Germany and having to answer to and salute people who, you know, hadn't been to the war, and and in some cases, did you find it that they, um, there was some friction between officers who hadn't been to the war commanding people with actual uh, experience? Like, what was that like to come from a war zone to a, you know, to just to a base?
2: It was it was strange, uh, you know. I always respected my higher ups, but there was still a part of just like you had said, you know. It is like they had something against us at times, you know. And at times I felt like we were picked on, you know, hmm. the, compared to non-combatants to combatists. Personnel, you know, and uh, yeah, I didn't like that. It was just a just a hodgepodge of a lot of different things that you know just made me feel uncomfortable. And I had to make a change. I had to go back to where I wanted to be. So,
1: right. so you you did get back to Vietnam, and you've told us before that you wanted to join. Um, more of a specialized team where maybe um, don't let me put words in your mouth, but in your first tour, you felt there was um, in the bigger units, maybe not everyone's on the same page and it got kind of dangerous. So you wanted to join a team where everyone wanted to be there. Um, And and where did that lead you? And and stop me if I'm wrong about what you had
2: said, but um, where did that lead you with that thought? Well, you know, like working with the 25th, my first tour, we were, the company commanders would would request scout dog handlers. And uh, I worked with so many different infantry companies with the first cab, it's hard to keep up with, you know, but I've worked with a bunch of them. But anyway, uh, the, uh, I kind of lost my chain of thought there. Can you, uh, no.
1: Um,
2: but that's so you, when you, oh, remember, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm just, I, I remember okay. now, uh, it was like, you know, working with these different infantry companies, I did see the big picture and some of these guys actually scared me mm. because they, they didn't take things seriously. And you could see a little problem arising in the, in the ranks and everything like that. Uh, Some guys would do anything to get out of the field, you know, during a firefight, and they might want to stick their arm up and hope they get shot just to get out of the field, you know. But seeing so much of that stuff, when I went back my second tour, I said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go with a more specialized unit. And so once I landed at k not k but but Cameron Bay, my second tour, that's when I met Craig Jurgerson. And we got to talking and everything. And while we were standing around talking, they was asking for volunteers to go with uh, the the uh, ranger units for the first camp. So we both volunteered, and it was probably one of one of the best units I ever served with. And just the people itself within the unit was outstanding. We go out on different kind of missions. I wouldn't have to worry about the guy to my side or to my back. We all had a job to do, and we did it. And I loved the 75th Hotel Company, 75th Ranger. There was a very good unit. But after Craig left the unit in November of 69, we still stayed in contact when he was an Alpha Troop. They kept telling me, you need to come on over here need to come on over here so the first of January of 1970 is when I made that change I've done done so much and seen so much with hotel company I said well maybe I, I can kind of calm down a little bit and still see things but it was actually like jumping out of the frying pan into the fire at times you know so many times
1: I've never heard of Apache trip being described as uh, a calm down, uh, ease out.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I had to learn myself, you know. I had to learn myself. Well, you get to come back in the rear every night. That might be true, but they didn't say what you had to do during the day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, as a LERP, I can see, you know, having to be quiet the whole time. Just, you know, always yeah. out there. And you would go out for you know, days at a time,
2: would you, as alert? Yeah, we'd go out for, we'd we'd pack for four days and uh, we'd pack for four days or until we got in contact, that's when they brought us in, you know. Sometimes I've only been out there a few hours and there's a few times I spent the whole four days out there, but it's like you say, it's real quiet, hand signals and you, you're humping a heavy load and you're walking some heavy trails and that was our job was to sneak around and try to get as much intelligence as we possibly could you
1: know yeah well and it was Lurks who uh figured out was it fire base ellingsworth that was about to get hit when they saw the the large units moving through and um, but you definitely don't want to get found when there's only five of you and a hundred of them
2: <laughs> yeah exactly exactly
1: So so you've jumped out of that frying pan into the fire with Apache Troop. That's a pretty good um, sense of it. But what was your role then in
2: Apache Troop? When I arrived at Apache Troop, uh, I'd already had my CIB combat Infantryman's Badge. And they asked me what I wanted to do. You want to go with the Blues or you want to go with the Scouts? And I said, well, I stopped and thought a I minute. Mean, I said, well, send me with the scouts. So let me see how that's like. And that's flying an observer in a loach right beside the pilot. So I went on my, out on my first mission with them, and I was sick all day long because <laughs> of the centrifugal motion. I was, I was wanting to get shot down while I could get on the ground. I could not take it. So I only spent one mission doing that. And I just told him I said, look, I'd be a danger to the pilot and the rest of you guys, man. Put me on the ground.
1: Well, yeah, the scouts are kind of like NASCAR in the sky, right? Just always exactly. taking their left turn and like exactly. Kowski said last week we figured out a new exercise program. Go sit in the observer seat and try and do sit ups as it's banking. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: really? So, all right, so you, you made a very informed decision that maybe this isn't for me. You went to the Blues, and as a, the Blues, um, you and Craig were back together and took on a pretty specialized role inside the Blues, correct?
2: Yes, uh, we both were squad leaders, and since I signed the Blues, and I didn't realize uh, how much Craig wanted to walk too because I had Jim Brown come up to me one day and he said, uh, you know, I want to ask you a question. I said, what is it, Jim? He said, why do you want to walk point all the time? And I just told him, I said, look, that's all I know. That's all I did my first tour, walk point. I didn't get to walk point with the Rangers that much. And I really tell you the I don't think I ever did. But when I got back with the Blues, That's when me and Craig took over the roles of taking turns walking point.
1: Well, Craig said he liked walking point because you didn't have to determine if the person in front of you was friend or foe.
2: Yeah, exactly, (laughs) yeah, really. Um, In
1: Apache Troop, you you saw a lot of very memorable missions, um, some of which we've covered on other podcasts, but you were there. on march 25th the day that craig was was wounded and airlifted out in front of cbs yes um there's you are visible on camera in two different scenes one of them very quickly while you're firing but then at the end when richard thrill killed is giving his little sign off you're right behind him um, I think with your Mohawk at that point, or? <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, I, we, I had a Mohawk at one time. I think I, it was that time. Uh, but that March the 25th, I remember we flew in with a CBS crew, wanted some combat footage. They said we got the unit to go out with. So they went out with us one morning at first light. But once we hit the ground, me and Craig noticed they were digging fighting positions right there at the tree lines. They'd just been there, and they just run back in the, in the jungle when they heard us coming. Mm-hmm. Once we got on the ground, me and Greg, Craig got together and discussed it, and we decided that they, they, we asked them to leave me and him behind because you're going to walk down the trail to get your little footage. You're going to get ambushed few minutes later, they said, no, we can't have it. Everybody stayed together. So Craig took point that day, and we walked down this trail, and it uh, wasn't too much longer. A little bit later on, uh, I heard contact, and uh, Craig was shot. He We were ambushed yeah, coming back right. to the trail.
1: They came in behind just like you
2: said they were going to. Yeah, exactly. They were, you know, I knew, knew what was going on.
1: Um, I do want to take a moment to clear something up for the audience because this comes up a lot in the comment sections on that video on YouTube which is closing in on 10 million views Uh, you're a superstar Ed (laughs) Uh, but uh, people wonder and and some people assume it's fake because of um, you guys aren't wearing helmets Uh, you and Craig aren't wearing helmets and and why weren't you wearing helmets? Ed, I'm gonna give you this this floor to tell people that there's a a reason you didn't.
2: Well, the main reason I didn't is the helmet itself was very cumbersome to me. And I feel like I could operate better without it because working with the Rangers, I worked with a flop hat, you know, no helmets either. And I didn't even use the flak jacket. You know, they tried to, uh, well, I might use my helmet my first tour, but, you know, my second tour, no. I just didn't like the helmet at all. And I know it was, it's for protection, but I felt like I could operate better without it. And it being a, such a defined big figure that I didn't want that on my head. So, uh, just didn't worry. and. Well,
1: and walking point too. The helmet was cutting off some of your. Yeah, it
2: just—it was cumbersome. It was uh had a had a lot of fallbacks to it, and uh, I elected not to wear it.
1: They kept giving you some though. What happened to the helmets
2: they would give you? (laughs) When I left country, I believe I had three or four under my hoods bed,
1: (laughs) and a, a couple more fell out of
2: helicopters, didn't they? There you go.
1: Nice, <laughs> so that,
0: um, When when you rotated out of Apache Troop, did you come? Uh, did you come straight back home, or did you stop off in California, or did they fly? Where How would you get home?
2: Well, <clears throat> right there, two weeks before I was supposed to de roost and come mm-hmm. home, my second tour, I come down with malaria again, mm-hmm. and I had the killer kind. It was called falciparum malaria. And that was the second time I've had it. And so they had made me out of country immediately and sent me to the hospital in Japan. And I was over there for a couple of months before I could even, you know, get back wow. home.
0: Well, how was Japan?
2: Well, we didn't get to see much. Now we did jump over the gates on the weekend and get on the train and go to Tokyo and have a meal on Friday evenings, but, Japan Japan at that time they was having a little protests going on too yeah.
1: so speaking of jumping over a gate
2: you and Craig jumped over
1: a gate at one point to uh to go join special forces didn't you
2: Oh yeah 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 we me and Craig you know we we were so gung ho it was unbelievable and uh me and Craig had some downtime, so we said, we're going to just take a little trip down to TNN. And we stopped at the Caldai temple and got on the rig shawls, And all of a sudden, let's see, let's go to Special Forces camp and volunteer for a team. So we did. <laughs> so we went over there. But the guy that could probably have hired us for the job at the time, he wasn't in. And so we didn't get to do anything. So after we got back to the rear, you know, we don't get that much time off so often. Right. But we was going to try to utilize it best way we could, you know.
1: Um, and actually, we were talking before we turned it on, Dustin, before you got on. Yesterday was a fairly significant anniversary, a 50-year anniversary of a of a... Very significant engagement for uh, the Blues um, and the pilots who got you out. Um, a LERP team, so very dear to your heart, was ambushed in Cambodia. Um, a couple killed right away. The radio broke in, um, and another another was um, not combat efficient. Right, he was too injured, so they yeah. were down. They were down 60% of their team, and they called in the Blues to help, but it was um, at nighttime and dense fog um, uh, in the mountains to go get us. It so was, it was a vol- like, we need volunteers for this. Um, and you were one of those volunteers, correct?
2: Yes. I remember once we heard, me and Craig heard about the contact the team had encountered, we started immediately trying to, trying to help as much as we could and once we found out that they was going to send us in on the rescue mission Craig went to the pilots and I went to the guys and just asked them who will volunteer to go in on this mission to try to find these guys so I'll never forget the uh, early in the morning that next morning we got on the choppers and it was raining it was real foggy and it hasn't got real light real good at all at that time so we just took off you know trying to go in the direction of where the last known location they were and having the pilots like we did they were extremely efficient and professional in everything they did and i think mini mac uh, bill mcintosh was the pilot on the bird we were on but we flew around the hills of Cambodia, he'd take that helicopter and he'd take it from side to side, you know, trying to stay as low level as he could and uh, trying to search for, for anything. And I found out later on at a reunion, Bill McIntosh had told us that he had to hold up his dog tags to make sure the ship was flying right. And I didn't wow. know that for many years, you know it was
1: and just that foggy that
2: it was it was that foggy it was real bad and we flew for it seemed like for a good 30 or 45 minutes before we landed the birds on this particular uh, location and off in a distance we saw a guy walking and we jumped back on the birds and we flew to him and picked him up but he was one of the team members it was trying to get back to uh, one of the LZs to, you know, relay what was going on
0: and right.
2: before they could go back and locate the team. But then once we found out the location, we went to the area where the team had gotten contact, and, you, and we just got off the bird and started searching. But I believe they were trying to draw us into an ambush while we was there they were still there and we searched and searched and searched and we even did things outside our bounds just to make sure that we could find these guys but we never did we never found two of them and you know I'm still dealing with that today but no, there's no buts to it. I'm still dealing with that today. That's one of the hard things to do when you go in for somebody and you can't find them and they're still listening. The day is missing in action. But at least we did get a few, uh, a couple of them out. And uh, I think it was three that we got out of there.
1: It was the, the three survivors, correct? Yes. Yeah. Because they had to escape and evade or a little right. bit they had to hunker down.
2: Um, yeah, one of the guys were still, was still there. Had, they had to hide him. I think it was Ron Andrus, and they had to hide him. And he took a, a real bad gunshot to the leg, and I believe he had an artillery bleed. And he's lucky to be alive himself. So.
1: Well, I mean, that's one thing that you can focus on, that your actions did save his life. I mean, all three of them. Um, yeah. So...
2: Yeah, Ever's yeah. A- yeah. You know, I, I feel proud about what we all did, uh, but I wish that it had been more successful than what it was because they deserved, they deserved to come home. Yeah. If nothing else, at least been found. And to my knowledge right now, I think bodies have never been recovered by any search teams or anything.
1: Well, there was a a, a pretty big... Uh, bounty on the Lerp Rangers. Wasn't there for NBA uh, if they brought back a, a Lerp?
2: Yeah, the, uh, especially a hotel company. I think we were, the, I think our company got the most valorous decorations of the Vietnam War and we were so effective in what we did. And at that time the North Vietnamese and V.C. had a bounty on our heads if they could catch uh, one of us and bring us back or, or parts of us back to prove that they got us, that they would get, I think it was 2,000 piastres and a small fish farm. Wow. That's a pretty good bounty, Ed. Yeah, oh, yeah, at the time it was. But, you know, later on during the war, the North Vietnamese started their own team and they use those teams to search for us by using our tactics and everything like that. Did you ever run into one of those guys?
0: Did you ever run run into one of those teams?
2: Uh, Don't really know for sure, but we usually, when we go out on a mission, we find us a heavily traveled trail we set up a position about 12, 15 foot off the trail and set our claymores and that and everything and try to watch and observe how the trail and what was coming down the trail. And a lot of times the Vietnamese didn't have, North Vietnamese didn't have radios and stuff like we did. What they did, they carried AKs and SKSs and they shot around in the air. And no, we carried the AKs and SKSs. When we heard them shoot, we'd shoot back. And so, what they would do is come to our location towards the sound of our return shot. You know, once they got in the kill, killing range, you know, we'd clock our claymores and be done with it. Sometimes we'd get out normally on a lift ship, but sometimes we had to get out on a briar rig too. And that's a heck of a ride, that's all I can tell you.
1: Let's hope you don't hit some branches on the way out of there.
2: Yeah. I loved for it, man. Listeners. That Maguire, it saved my butt so many times. I believe I had to lift it out five six different times by a Meguiar rig, and I, I didn't mind it at all. That fast. So carnival ride, yeah? Yeah, really.
1: And and for those listening who who aren't sure what a Meguiar rig is, that's when the helicopter... Drops down the harnesses, the ropes. You put it right around your chest, and um, how long? Are like 40 feet, 50 feet.
2: Well, usually feet? what what we do, we carry a rope with us uh, on our equipment. And what we do, we tie the rope around our chest and put a D link, D ring, on the rope. And the helicopter would drop 50 foot ropes down to us. We snap to them, and they take us straight out of the jungle lift us up and out but they could only take two or three at a you know three at a time you know but i do remember one day i was getting extracted on a jungle penetrator and we had to get out of an area fast and uh, medevac was the closest thing to us so he hovered over our location and he dropped a jungle penetrator and on the jungle penetrator it had a spring-loaded seat it flipped back up and you push it down to sit on it and you kind of hold on to the front of it and it takes you out but our the first and only time it i think i fell off that thing three or four times because my pack was so heavy it just pulled me off but i think about my fourth fourth time of grabbing hold of it I, I got it that time, <laughs> but it took te- te- several falls because, like I say, the pack was so heavy that it was just pulling you off of it. Wow. Uh, when you were on fight. the McGuire rig, did you ever
1: do the superman as your...
2: <laughs> <laughs> I carried the red cape in my left pouch, you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: Tell the pilot, don't take off yet, I gotta put my cape on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. All right. Um, So, Dustin, was talking about coming home. Yeah, so
0: Japan. uh, Once the cute Japanese nurses decided you were fit to travel, where did you you end up?
2: Well, uh, they got orders to, uh, they wanted to send me back to Germany. I said, no, I'd rather not go to Germany. And can you find something in the States for me? They said, well, we can send you to Fort Hood, Texas. I said, "That, that sounds good to me. So, after I come home on leave and went to Fort Hood, Texas, I went to Replacement center there and when I was inside the replacement center, I didn't know what units were or anything and I noticed there was a little flyer up on a billboard, and it was company a seventy fifth Rangers there, and they were asking for volunteers and So when the guy come back to me and asked me what units I, unit I'd like to go to, he named off with you. I said, I'd like to go with Alpha Company said in Fifth Rangers up there. I kind of believe he tried to talk me out of it. He said, you don't want to go with that group because they're a bunch of crazy people. They jump all the time and they just, just do crazy things. I said, I swear I want to go with because that's how <laughs> I just left, you know. So, got what Alpha Company said Fifth Rangers at Fort Hood and Stayed with them until I got in the military.
1: Did mean, you jump out of some planes or?
2: Yeah, quite a few helicopters, planes—you you name it. We we jumped out about everything, day and night.
0: That sounds like a good time.
2: It was. Martha Ray came watched this one day. She came to our unit and she was dressed in her green beret and her army uniform, Colonel Maggie. And we did like a combat jump for our c C-141 and combat jump at 800 feet or less, you know, wow. I think the time I j- exit the aircraft and time I shoot open, I was on the ground. That's how fast, how low <laughs> we were, you know, too low, really. Yeah.
1: But kind of fun for someone that age, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, it really was. Yeah. And you see, I think, See Alpha Company, seventy fifth at Fort Hood, comprised of a lot of different other guys that were Ranger unit like Papa Company, November Company, Charlie Company. It was thirteen Ranger companies in Vietnam. A lot of those guys spent time at Alpha Company.
0: Okay, cool. Just to, just on their way out, like that's where you all ended up.
2: Either that or they stayed in there at one time. I was going to stay in myself. And as a matter of fact, they tried to talk me into staying in. I said, no, I don't made my mind to get out. And so I got out just before they formed battalions in 74. Wow. Uh, what'd you go do?
0: What did what I do? Yeah. I,
2: I well, I went home and I'd kind of wish I'd have stayed in at the time. I, I still really wish I'd have stayed in now, but I can't go back and fix that now. But I stayed affiliated one way or another with the military and still still do to this day. But when I got home, I had a a real hard time adjusting back to civilian life. And it and got to the point where... You didn't talk about Vietnam. Nobody wanted to hear it. And, if it. and you got a lot of negative comments and everything. So I just kept this stuff bottled up in me for years. Mm. Many years. And
1: I've been going back and forth in my mind about whether to ask this question because it's covered very emotionally and eloquently in the movie. But... I think it's important to ask in um, a lot of different platforms because uh, I see too many people try to deny that this happened. Um, and you, was it when you first came back, you had a, a gentleman give you a very, a elderly gentleman give you a very special greeting back to the United States
2: uh, in terms of, um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. All right. I didn't want to uh, get to the ending, but go ahead. Yeah, I was, uh, as I was coming back my first tour in Vietnam, I was coming home. And uh, I spent one day in San Francisco, and they told me in San Francisco, go buy some civilian clothes, don't be caught in your, your uniform. So I bought me some civvies and went to Frisco, stayed a day. Then I flew from there and went to Chicago, and I stayed in Chicago a day just to see the place. By the time I got home, my parents had done called the Red Cross trying to find out where in the hell I was at because <laughs> I'd called them three days early and said, I'm on my way home, and three days later I still got there. But when I was at O'Hara Airport in June 68, I had this elderly man walk up to me and uh, he kind of looked at me and he spit on, spit on me and it shocked me. I said, wow, why did he do that? I didn't say that, man, I was in such of a shade of shock that, and he walked away. But over the years, I figured he was either against the war or he had somebody killed close to him in Vietnam. and It was hard to say. There was no verbal communication at all. He left me in a steady shot. Wow.
1: Yeah, and just to reiterate for the deniers who not only want to deny that troops got spit on, but cast aspersions to anyone who would even dare suggest that they were, you, Ed Beale, were personally spit on when you came home
2: from Vietnam. Yeah. Um,
1: well,
0: I'm sorry that happened to you, Ed
2: yeah
1: mm-hmm.
2: yeah. things happen buddy
1: it's true that, that yeah um but i think one of your phrases was you know if someone wants to be ignorant let them be ignorant on the wrong time
2: that's right that's exactly right
1: um but when you came home home um how was it kind of reintegrating with your friends or your family um just just that that initial and over time
2: well, it's when I got back home, uh, I was trying to adjust to being back home, but once I started getting out around my friends and stuff, I felt even stranger because we had nothing in common no more mm. and really, after I realized that. We just didn't hang out no more. And I more or less kind of stayed to myself, you know. Uh, I had a family, and I was trying to raise a family and work full-time. And just the things that I needed to do. And, and like I say, I just kept to myself and kept my mouth shut until back in the 80s when I got to where Enough is enough. I'm not doing this no more. And that's when uh, I got together with a bunch of other vets in the local area and everything like that and we, we made things ha- happen for us, you know kind of miss those times too to really jump start the whole situation and
0: that's a really nice way of putting it uh we made it happen for us um yeah. did you guys did you guys find a um did you find a VFW office, or did you just get together at somebody's house? What did you, what did you guys do?
2: Well, we, we, uh, we got together as a group, and we kind of tried to join. We never joined – it wasn't a VFW or anything like that. It was uh, Vietnam Veterans of America, something like that. It's been so long ago, Dustin. I really can't remember. But anyway, we'd meet in Greensboro at a local bar. And we just sit and talk. And as time went on, more vets started coming to it. And once we got a large group of vets, we kind of organized and started our own little chapter. And we conducted a business. We did a lot of things for other vets, you know, and for the organization itself. But, you know, we more or less... uh, to each other and tried to heal as best as we could. Well, that's and, the right thing, man.
1: And so that was veteran talking to veteran. Um, we first talked to you four, four years ago. Uh, we met in Las Vegas at your guys' mini reunion. Um, in our very first interview, um, was that the first time you had talked? Well, I don't want to like say first time, but in terms of an in-depth discussion with a non-veteran, I mean, we've known each other for two days. Was that kind of the first time you had sat down for that kind of conversation outside of your veteran group?
2: Yeah, it was the first time that anything like that ever happened in my life. And even in Las Vegas, I was struggling then. I was struggling. Big. I was struggling, but as time goes on, you know things are better. One thing Vietnam did to me, it destroyed my emotions. I have no control over them anymore, and you know there's so many triggers old songs, smells, a lot of different things. It just brings it all back. And sometimes it affects me pretty hard.
1: Yeah, and I have to, I mean, thank you on a number of levels. A, for trusting us, not just to make this movie and to come on our podcast, um, but just Trusting us to sit down in a room with us and actually have the conversation and and to talk as openly as you did uh, with Dustin and myself and with Charles. Um, I mean, I remember remember that day well for a number of reasons but one was, and I told Dwayne the same thing and I have to thank you for this. Your interview was one of the uh, watershed moments for us. You know, we talked for hours, hours in the room. Um, and when we went to dinner that night, um, you were smiling. Like, you seemed different. I'm not going to say, you, oh, God, you, everything you was off.
2: At the Harley-Davidson place. Yeah, I was going
0: to say, you picked up that photo girl at the Harley-Davidson cafe.
2: yeah <laughs> sure did. I got it hanging on the wall right
1: now. <laughs> yeah, there was that like 23-year-old girl from Ukraine who, you know, her job was to sell pictures. and She had a fish it's... on with Ed. There you
2: go. That's it.
1: You had the biggest you... smile.
2: And you know, I, looked... go ahead. I, I want to say one more thing that happened this past Memorial Day. You know, in the documentary you did, I talked about something I had to do. It's pretty her- horrific. And something that I've been living with for 50 years now. Uh, I've never felt sorry for myself because of what I had to do, but I didn't like it because I was put in that position to do it. But this Memorial Day, I was sitting around watching the ceremonies on TV, and it hit me. I'd give closure to a family. And I never looked at it that way. I give that family closure. They got their son back. How would it have been? It would have been devastating to me if if we'd said, okay, we can't get him. Let's go. We got to get out of here because we was under fire at the time. That would have been devastating to me because it would have have been on my mind just like, you know, anything for 50 years. And I don't know if I could have lived without my, uh, No, night. You
0: guys had a crazy important job. You, you, you provide closure to an incredible number of
1: families. Well, and you provided sons back to an incredible number of families with all the yeah. men that you rescued. Yeah. That's, well, that's me too. Yeah. Sons and husbands and brothers, um, all because you guys would volunteer and, uh, rainy foggy day where the pilot had to hold his dog tags to make sure you weren't upside down it was so foggy and you still went out and did it and then you know three men were able to come home so yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm happy that you could see that this year that you know uh, that makes me makes me quite happy for you Ed.
2: Yeah, right. I, I just want to tell you that because it just happened a short period of time ago. And I can't, I, it was, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. That's, what, that's thinking really about what area. it's done to you, think about what you did for another family. That's right. And was it a, like,
1: a, a calming ton of bricks? Like, acceptance? Like, I mean, yeah, you know what I mean, Dustin, stop laughing. No. Um when you say it hit you like a ton of bricks, was it
2: peace that you got from that? or No, I started crying immediately. When I realized the thought I had in my head after hearing another family talk on TV, it hit me all of a sudden. And I started crying. And I couldn't stop. I actually had to go get my fiancee, Lynn, and me and her got in a truck and we took off to the mountains just for a short day trip. I had to get out and clear my head. But that was the first time in 50 years I actually thought of it like that. I don't know why, but it just hit me.
0: That sounds incredibly overwhelming and really cathartic. Did you call me a name? I said, that sound is...
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you call me cathartic? <laughs> I said he was. He was calling you a name. You should take it out on him when we visit you. That's right. Uh, I'm an instigator. Well, um, thanks a lot, Dave. Yeah, No problem. It's enjoyable. Um, one of the other things I... Got to put air quotes around this thank you, Ed. Uh, the aftermath of that uh, interview in Vegas. Um, at that point, we thought we were going to be doing one filming trip, bing, bam, boom, movies out, we're done. Um, but you mentioned that your daughter had always wanted to talk to you, and you put it off. But based off how you felt coming out of our interview, you, you were going to talk with her. And we thought, okay, well, we can't, you know, it's great to see like in the moment that the talk helped, but you know, will it over time, will that moment stick with you? And Will you actually talk with your daughter? And that's when we made the decision, um, not like there that day, but looking back on that moment, we made the decision to keep following up with you guys over the years. Um, So, so thank you for, turning our movie into a multi-year project
2: now <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for, I for the greater
1: me. for the yeah. greater for the much greater um but did you have that talk with your daughter um, that you wanted to have leaving that interview did you go and do it
2: yeah we talked and uh i've got into a little more depth about what kind of person I am and how the war changed me. Now, my Kathy, my oldest daughter is coming up from San Antonio, Texas, probably tomorrow. She's just gonna spend a couple of days with us. But she's uh, she's been in the military all her life and uh, she's been to, from country to country, from base to base with her husband yes. and everything. And uh, I'm gonna talk to her in more depth, when she gets here, so I'll be two daughters. I'll be talking to. Well, good uh, luck. Ed. I believe in you. All right, Dustin. Uh,
1: how are you feeling? You know, night before that, uh, and you've done this a couple times now. Is it getting easier? Um, or, you know, um, how do you feel going into this this weekend? Uh, I
2: feel. I feel great. I mean, I feel good, I feel more relaxed, I feel more at ease uh, because I know where y'all coming from, that makes me feel more comfortable and you put me at ease. And it seems like I can talk to you a little bit about things that happened or or how it's changed my life. Uh, It's hard to just talk to anybody back because, you know, a lot of people just don't want to hear, it, or they just don't understand it all. I've even had one person tell me, won't you just turn that stuff off? Like I got an on-off switch, I can turn it on and turn it off when I want to. It don't work like that. Vietnam's been with me for over 52 years. It rains in my head, but I've been through so many PTSD programs through the VA system itself the world they have taught me a lot. How to help yourself and how to watch out for different situations or different things. And it's helped tremendously. I went through the 30 day program, PTSD, uh, program in Salem, Virginia, three different times. And they, they put you through psychodramas and all kind of stuff, just to bring the stuff out where you can deal with. It. You can't deal with it once it's, when you got it stuffed down inside you. You have to lighten that load. And I'm pretty selective when I want to lighten that load. Just don't do it to anybody. I do it around people I trust or other veterans.
1: And so for any veterans who could be watching this podcast, um, when we put it out next Monday, five years from now, 10 years from now with the way the internet lives, any veteran that thinks they want to talk or kind of feels this need to talk, or maybe on the other hand is resisting talking, what would you say to that veteran who's watching at this for them at this
2: point right now? You have to break those chains. You have to reach out. I know it's a hard thing to do, but you're doing yourself a big disservice when you keep everything bottled up inside you. And uh, you have to break those chains. You have to move forward. You just can't stay stuck in the same rut all the time. Oh, woe is me. You can't do that. You have to get out of that cycle and break that chain. That's what I did. And it's probably the best things I could have ever done.
1: And for family members as well, um, I'll go to the other side. My, Let's say my wife. Or my brother is a veteran who just is home from deployment or has transitioned out of the military. Um, what would advice would you have for a family member who, on how they could open up a line of communication with a veteran?
2: Well, you have to you have to get to where you understand each other. You have to understand each other and know what you're talking about, and you can. I'm the type of person, I can pick advice from family members or even friends about whether they want to hear it or not. So, But family members, if you really care about the veteran, you need to talk to him and understand his perspective about everything. Maybe he's doing the same thing. He's not wanting to talk to you because he don't want to upset you about different things that this made him the way he is. Or just the, the trauma itself, you know. It's, it's, it's a it's a monster. It used to be a monster inside me, and I wasn't gonna let that monster control me. I took control of the situation. But family just has to get together. Encouragement, hope. It just you have to understand each other and you need to start that dialogue. Even if it's a small one, at least it's a start. Then you can go from there. Yeah, this is not a one conversation. No, and no, it's not it's not a overnight deal. It it is it takes years. It took me years to get to where I'm at right now. I'm pretty proud of myself, you know, that I, I, I think I did it the right and way. You should man. be
1: proud of yourself. You've done good. <laughs> yeah, and I will say, we almost named this podcast over a quote that you had in our second interview. We almost named it, but we didn't think it was easy to market around. But we almost named it the Know Their
2: Story podcast. You know the Nether Story
1: know their story because you told us Oh, know
2: their story yeah if,
1: if you have someone in there in your life like go listen to their story
2: like they yeah are... you, you have to listen to their story if, if if you don't you can't understand where he's coming from that's where the communication part comes into play you have to talk to each other and like i say if it's just for a short period of time to start off it can grow into something bigger and better in the long run.
1: Perfect advice. Um, I've run through my conversation topics. How are you doing, Mr. Dustin? I hang
0: out with Ed all day long, man. Uh, don't get me started. I want to talk about I want to talk about sports here in a second. And uh, we're, gonna, yeah. we're gonna get a lot, we got a lot to talk about. Actually, okay. there there have been some comic books that have happened in the last six
1: months that I want to talk to Ed about uh uh-huh. I, remember this ed this is the <laughs> oh, bubble yeah. pet you
2: gave me last time we visited right here in my office with all my other star wars stuff i see i see Darth vader over in the corner
1: yeah and there's a little lego star wars ship Y-wing. Uh-huh. So, and i huh. so i got other stuff all around so you tell
2: you tell dustin i got my comic books uh spread out and uh, we'll get together with that when when he gets here. All right. Well,
0: I'll I'll come check out your whole collection when you get
2: there.
1: No, Dustin, um, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to tell you. Oh, uh, what is your most <laughs> what is your most
2: valuable comic book yet? For most, uh, I got several comics. Uh, as the very low number of Spider Man, I believe, is number eleven. And it's worth several hundreds of dollars. And uh, and I've got many boxes full of you know mint condition comic books from the Spider Man era. And uh,
1: you have a lot of yeah. X Men, too, right?
2: Yeah, X Men. You know, I'm into sports cards right now, I'm selling a little sports cards on eBay. Uh, oh, yeah,
0: that's yeah, I'm that's. Getting,
2: getting them certified through PSA and uh, keeping the ones I want and selling the others. So I got a downsize on a lot of my collection. And uh,
1: Yeah, well, uh, this has been my newest addiction
2: that my wife oh. is.
1: Little Angus Young with the Funko Pop.
2: What? Was, that you when, was that you when you was a little boy?
1: I could only hope to be as cool as Angus oh, Young. What? ACDC
0: all the way. you are way cooler than Angus Young. I don't know if you know this. It's about yourself. Uh.
1: I, can, I cannot rock the schoolboy outfit like he does. <laughs>
0: I, I bet we could. I, bet, I think we just haven't tried it out. I bet we could make you rock a schoolboy outfit pretty amazingly.
1: I bet we're yeah, never, yeah. ever going to find out. <laughs> yeah. I will lay whatever odds we need to that we will never find that out. <laughs> Cue picture of me in that next frame. <laughs> narrator voice i did in fact find out what i looked now um ed let me open up the floor to you uh any anything we didn't cover i give our guests the parting shot the parting the parting go what would you would you like to take the moment to, to say anything to our audience
2: yes uh What I'd like to say about the whole project itself, I want to thank you and both you and Dustin for what you're doing. You're doing a tremendous service, not just to us, but to other vets also. And I just hope once the public sees this stuff that they they can start to understand a little bit what the Vietnam veterans went through when they came home and what some are still experiencing today. Because if it's not out there and you don't talk about it, you don't have a clue what, what went on or what happened. And the way things are going now, history is being re raised fast. We can't let this fall by the wayside and be forgotten. No war can be forgotten. Korean War, World War II, War. no war. Because war is hell, but combat's an MF.
1: Well, Hope the whole audience can fill in what MF means. <laughs> um, but now, and you know, thank you not only um, for Vietnam veterans and coming on, and hopefully, you know, people can look at someone like you who was at Khe was in tech, was with the Lurps, was with the Apache troop, and saw, you know, for you, someone who was you could say been there, done that multiple times so for you to come out and say no this is okay to feel this way this is okay to talk um, hopefully this will inspire your your lead will inspire other Vietnam veterans but also modern day veterans the first Gulf War the current the current wars that this is a very common thing like this isn't you know you can go back to, to World War II World War I letters home from any of the wars like this is okay to, to, think about and to feel when it's okay to talk about that. So thank you for being a point man on this.
2: Yeah. My pleasure, buddy. My pleasure.
1: So you want to do the sign off Dustin?
2: Remind everyone to,
1: to click
0: the likes or you want me to do it? Man? Thanks for watching us today, everybody. Uh, Ed, thanks for being here. And thank uh, you.
2: My pleasure guys. I'll see
0: you guys next time. You've been listening to the know their story podcast. If you made it this far, we must be doing something right.
1: Let us know by subscribing to our channel. And think about sitting down with the veterans in your life because saying thank you for your service should be the beginning of the conversation, not the end.